Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. It is election week. In case you didn't hear about it, we vote on Tuesday. And so, as the Lord would have it, on election week, we're studying love your enemies. And I think that's very appropriate because I think in our context, if I find out that you don't vote like me, Blake, you are instantly my enemy. At least that's what we uh, feel in our culture. It feels like you can't like a person if we aren't on the same page. We continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, and just remember how Luke, what Luke's been doing. Luke has been presenting an orderly account of Jesus' life, his teachings, his miracles, so that we could gain confidence that the Christian teachings that, was, that were passed down to us are true. And so we've seen a tremendous amount of incredible things that Jesus, in his birth, it was predicted and prophesied that he would be the Messiah, and everything's just lining up that he, he's proving he is the Messiah. And the people, by this time in, the, in the Luke, we're in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and following, by this time in the Gospel of Luke, we see the crowds, massive crowds, are gathering around Jesus. They're buying uh, buying the story. They're buying into this. There's something about Jesus, his miracles. He's cast demons out of people. He's healed paralytics. He's provided a miraculous catch of fish, and he's called disciples to himself. And last week, we saw that he began to, to teach those disciples, and we looked at it in terms of a, a church planting team, that really this was Jesus calling his apostles, who would be the leaders of his new church planting movement. And this movement led to us being here today, that it's been a very successful movement, needless to say, that, that he is uh, building a church, and he's doing it through very ordinary people like us. As we are disciples of Jesus, and we become consumed with being like Jesus in every sense of the word, in every part of our lives, and we bring others along with us, then he is building his church in that seemingly very ordinary way. And so we saw last week he began to say, now I want you to understand how to think and how to live as my disciples. He's kind of laying down a new value system. And in that value system last week, we really saw him challenging us to have an eternal perspective. He said, look, right now, if you follow me, you're going to be treated like the prophets were treated. And they were killed. They were mocked. They were abused. They were, they were treated terribly. And he says, but you're blessed if you're treated that way because you are aligned with me. You will inherit the kingdom of God. And so he, he pointed our minds to the future and said, you may be persecuted now, but blessed are you for you shall inherit the kingdom of God. You shall be satisfied. You shall experience the eternal reward and perhaps more poignantly to today's message he also said to those who are rich and full and blessed now because they've rejected Jesus he said their day is coming vengeance is mine says the Lord so those who curse you those who who exclude you those who punish you and treat you terribly your enemies because of Christ, are going to get what they deserve. Now, something about that sounds almost unchristian, doesn't it? It's almost like, well, we shouldn't want that. Well, the Bible actually teaches that God leave vengeance to the Lord, that God is a just God. God will punish all of his enemies. God will get 
what's right. He will establish justice. And so that should free us to do what we see today he's calling us to do is to love our enemies. Leave the wrath, leave the condemnation, leave the punishment, leave justice, leave vengeance to the Lord though we are called in the meantime to love our enemies. And today we're going to look at verses 27 through 38. Uh, In these verses, Jesus continues to equip us with his new value system, his new way of thinking. We're going to see he's going to teach us how to behave towards our quote-unquote enemies, and he's going to give us motivations to be able to follow these commands. He's going to say, love your enemies... And he's going to detail what that looks like, behaviors. And then he's going to say, and here's the motivation so that you can love your enemies. Let's ask the Lord for his help this morning. Father, we ask that you would equip us by your spirit to love our enemies. Lord, this is something that is otherworldly. It's something that is not in our nature. It's it's not in our natural self to love enemies. And so we need... We need you, your spirit, to empower us, to change our hearts, to work in us, to take your word and plant it deep within our hearts, change our character, change our attitudes, change our values, change us, Lord, this morning. Would Would you do that this morning so that when we leave here, we are empowered by your spirit to obey your word, believing your word is good. Help us, Lord, this morning to love our enemies. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at some prescribed behaviors that kind of fall under this umbrella of love your enemies. And I'm getting this in verses 27 through 31. So follow along with me, 27 through the first half of 31. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs or demands from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So pause there. And in, in, in verse 27, when Jesus says, I say to you who hear, he's referring to those who have ears to hear, to those who will obey what they are hearing from the Lord. So he's saying to his followers, to his disciples, I have a unique teaching for you that is different than what you would have if you did not have the Holy Spirit. This is only something that you can do if you are truly a follower of Christ. Those of you who have the Holy Spirit, who have ears to hear, who have the empowerment of God to obey, this is what I'm calling you to do. And it's radically different than what you would see in the world. It's radically different than what you would want to do in the flesh, in your own. And he basically lays down what we call the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Do unto others as, other, as you would have them do unto you, right? Well, that's not new to us. This is, that was common saying in Greek culture. It was do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But there was a little different nuance in the thinking. At least I hope it's different than the, what you 
might have used that golden rule to mean. The way they used it was to say, do unto others more like, so that you can have them do unto you. Do unto those who are on the inside of the inside group, those who are in the group on the inside of our elite club, do unto them and they will do unto you. It's kind of this reciprocal nature of society. You scratch, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. And we'll take care of our own. We'll create this kind of exclusive group built on things that we've deemed are the, the qualifying things that allow you to be in the inside of this group. And once you're on the inside, I got your back and you get my back. That's actually more the way of the cultural, that's the way this golden rule was understood. And, and it's very, very do unto others, very much a tribal, it's very much a worldly, it's very much... Uh, an elitist mentality of, hey, if you can help me, then I'm going to let you in. If you are good enough, if you measure up, and I, I may even do unto you in order to put you in debt to me so that then I am empowered. It's, it's, a, power, it's a power grab. So it's very different than the way you might have initially thought of this idea of the golden rule. And so in contrast to that, in contrast to this idea of the, the, the tax collectors that Jesus sat and ate with were outside of this type of group of people who take care of each other because we can. And if you can't reciprocate, you're not on the inside. If you don't measure up, if you're not religious enough, elite enough, powerful enough, you have enough wherewithal to be able to be an asset in our organization, then you're considered an outsider. And they were furious and could not believe that Jesus, who they were starting to maybe buy in, was the Messiah. Jesus was sitting with these type of outsiders, these tax collectors who were not on the inside, and, and they were furious. Why would you do this? And this is what launched Jesus into his, this is how things work inside my church. And so he says, love your enemies, love the outsiders, do to them as you would have them do to you. But it's much different than the way the world was viewing it, the way the culture views that phrase at the time was, they were saying, just do if you can do for me. He's saying, no, do for those who can't do for you. Treat others who can give you nothing in return. That's the idea, that's the principle underlying all these different examples that he gives. He's saying that you should treat those who the world calls your enemies, you should not treat them the way the world treats your enemies. Instead of cursing your enemies, instead of demanding back what they take from you, instead of, instead of reciprocating with hatred towards them, you should treat them much differently than the world. The world hates their enemies, well, not my people. My people, I call you to love your enemies. So the question is, who are your enemies? I struggled with that all week. I thought, who, who are my enemies? Lord, how, how do I apply this text? 
I really don't have anybody. Now, there may be a lot of people out there that would consider me their enemy, but I'm not aware of them. I don't have a lot of people in my mind that come to mind that I think, well, that is my enemy. As I thought about it more, and I, I think you may be similar, the more I thought about it, the more I could think of a stereotype. I could think of a type of person who would be considered my enemy or that I would think that they absolutely hate me and hate everything I stand for, especially as a pastor. And so I think that we should stop and think, who are your enemies? Very literally, who is God calling you to not do what is very natural, i.e. respond in like hatred or persecution, but instead to do something that's very supernatural, to love them. I think the easiest is, like I said in the opening, is those who are on the other side of the political aisle from us. In our culture, the world says they are the enemy. They are trying to destroy you and your country and your business and whatever else. And the environment, whichever side you're on, they're trying to destroy you. They are the enemy. Eliminate the enemy. Jesus says, no, love the enemy. Enemies, who are they? Well, they're outsiders. Last week in verse 22, Jesus referred to the enemies. He said, blessed are you when people hate you. So countercultural. You're blessed. You're, you're happy with the happiness and the joy of the Lord when people hate you. And when they exclude you. Here are the enemies. The people who hate you. The people who exclude you. The people who revile you. The people who spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So this is precisely in the context of the text of the scriptures. The enemies are those who are against you because of Jesus. You can apply it politically. You can apply it very personally. If you have a, a very uh, a difficult relationship with someone, someone has harmed you and hurt you deeply, then yeah, you can apply this text, this call to love your enemies to them as well. In this text, it's particularly relating to off the heels of Jesus eating with tax collectors. Those are the outsiders. Those are the people who aren't on the inside of the church because they're quote-unquote sinners in the sense that they're not religious. They haven't cleaned themselves up and done a good enough job of being religious and meeting our standards to be considered insiders. Jesus says, you're to, to love those kind of outsiders. Jesus saying that his people, his followers, his church should consider outsiders more like family. That you should consider and treat outsiders less like enemies and more like you treat your family. I think that principle holds true when we go through the examples. What does it mean to love them and to treat them more like family and less like enemies? Well, he gives us seven examples in these verses. In 27 through 30, he puts some meat on the bones of what does love look like? Does that mean I'm just supposed to have some sentimental warm feeling towards them? What do you want me to do, Jesus, with these people who, in the flesh, if I'm honest, I'll take joy in hating them? And Jesus says, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do good. I want you to do good to them. Wow, seriously? 
I want you to do good for them. I want you to bless them. I want you to put them on your list of people that you are praying for and not praying in the prayers of condemnation, but prayers for their good. Do good for them, bless them, pray for them. Put, the, put them in your mind right now, the people that you thought of when I said, who are your enemies? And think about what God is saying to you. Do good for them, bless them, pray for them. Offer the other cheek. Seriously? Some of you have played sports with me, and you know I'm not quick to offer the other cheek, especially on the field. Give your tunic. In other words, if he steals your coat, give him the shirt off your back. Give to the beggar. Give to the one who's demanding from you something. And the one who steals something from you, don't demand it back. That is absolutely counter to everything inside of me, apart from the grace of God working in me. These are all proactive acts of kindness towards a person who is proactively persecuting you. Not just warm, sentimental, not just the absence of revenge. That's one step. Not just, hey, you know what? Forgive them because it's going to destroy you. That is absolutely true. If you don't forgive them, you're not hurting them. You're only punishing yourself. But it's not just that. It's not a command just to absence of retaliation. It starts with that. But then he says, now, actually, I want you to seven examples of proactively blessing them. Bless them, pray for them, be kind to them, don't do anything back for them, do good to them. To love them means to respond to them proactively with mercy and kindness and goodness and grace and forgiveness and blessing. Does that sound familiar? Like someone's treated you that way, i.e. God. Now, as a quick aside, this does not mean you can't take this one text and say, okay, that demands that we are absolutely 100% pacifist. The, 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 the word of God also gives us teaching that the government is a blessing, even bad government's better than no government and anarchy, but the government is a blessing and you are still have at your disposal justice that the law affords and you can seek protection in those things. It's not that cut and dry, it's not either or, but he's challenging the attitudes of the heart. When someone steals from you, do you just say, put them in jail, sla slap the law, slap the book against them, and just lock them up? Or do you stop and check your heart and say, how would the Lord want me to handle this situation? It may end up including, if, the, if, it, if it's the Lord leading and if it makes sense, you may go and take the full full force of the law against them. But the point is, you can't just say, it's not just, hey, just lock them up. You have to question your heart. Is this a loving thing to do? 
Any, any use of government authority against someone should be done in love. This is what's best for them and for society, that this would lead to their rehabilitation. This would protect them. This, this discipline in their life would be a blessing. It's not meant for us to use things to get revenge. Vengeance is the Lord's. So, how do we love? Jesus is redefining how we should view and treat outsiders, even if they're vehemently opposed to us. How do we apply this? Who are your enemies? Who are the outsiders to us? I told you as I thought about this, I thought more of a type of person. I thought of a type of of person who hates everything that I, as a Bible-believing Christian, stands for. And I, I found a clip that I want you to watch. And here is a quick example of the type of person I would say considers me their enemy. I remember my heart pumping pretty fast. I've also felt self-righteous, like I'm right and they're wrong. And so it kind of felt like going into some kind of battle, you know, even though it was going through a drive-through. Anti-gay breakfast sandwich. Mmm, always tastes better when it's full of hate. Mm. Let's see what happens with my free water, and I think I might just say a few words, too. Let's see. Hey, how you doing? Fine. Good. Is this my free water? It is. Awesome. You know why I'm getting the free water, right? I do not. Because Chick-fil-A is a hateful corporation. I know, but I know, but you guys, but the corporation gives money to hate hate groups. Just because people want to kiss another guy. We're always happy to serve every. I don't know how you live with yourself and, and work here. I don't understand it. This is a horrible corporation with horrible values. I'm a nice guy, by the way, and I'm totally heterosexual. I'm not not a gay in me. I just can't stand the hate. You know, it got to stop. It's got to stop, guys. Stand up. All right. See you guys. I don't know if you could follow the video, but what this guy's story is, this was a CBS News report, a 30-minute documentary on the cancel culture. And this guy was trying to cancel Chick-fil-A and make it go viral and try to shut down Chick-fil-A because Dan Cathy, the, the founder's son, the head of the, the, uh, of the corporation, said that he didn't agree, that he thought biblical, the Bible teaches that homosexuality is wrong. And him, out of his love for his brother-in-law, who was is, who is claimed to be a homosexual, in his anger, drove through, recorded it, and wanted to cancel, wanted to start a movement to shut them down and, and treat them that way. So what do you think about this guy? How, what kind of feelings do the cancel culture, a cancel culture, if you don't know what that is, most of us do, but it's when social media or any people rally a people to try to destroy your livelihood because they disagree with what you stand for or what you said. Very easily could happen to me. Someone picks up something I say in a sermon, this sermon today, it gets on social media, it spreads, and they come and they try to wreak havoc on my life and on this church. How do we respond to them? How do we treat this man? How do we treat someone doing that? So while he tried to cancel Chick-fil-A, it actually backfired on him. Watch what happened. Yeah. When I uploaded it, 
I didn't know that I was making it public. I had five followers. It was all, it was my family members. But the next day, I go into the office. Before I go to the office, I, I go to the Chick-fil-A and try to apologize to the drive through operator, but she, she didn't want to talk at the time. And so I go into the office, and this, the receptionist said, Adam, what, what did you do? And she said, well, there's the voicemail is completely full of bomb threats and death threats to the company. And at that moment, I knew there was a major problem that we had to deal with, that I had to deal with. So he gets to work, and it went viral all right, but it went viral against him. He lost his job. He then lost two more jobs when they found out about this video. He ended up on food stamps. He and his children and his family ended up on food stamps. And he goes on in the story to share how he came very, very, very close to committing suicide because he had a million-dollar policy with no suicide exclusions because of what the response was to his actions. Is that the way that we as Christians are supposed to respond when we're treated like that? No. We shouldn't take pleasure in seeing this man suffer for coming against a corporation. You don't mess with our chicken, right? You don't mess with our Chick-fil-A. But when someone does, and they're trying to, that, that poor worker, and you're just going, really, dude, this girl is just working her job, and you're going to come pull this on her? Jesus says, love him. Do good towards him. What if instead there was a, and I don't know who did the bomb threats. I don't know who that was. It may have just been big chicken fans that liked Chick-fil-A, but most likely it was a lot of people who call themselves Christians and were in their church and were, were just going to shut this dude down. We're going to cancel him trying to cancel us. But what if instead the church rallied when he got on food stamps and did a GoFundMe page for him? and provided food for he and his family as he was attacking them. That's what Jesus is calling us to be like in this cancel culture. It evokes visceral responses in us to see that someone is being canceled, being treated with vitriol, treated, trying to destroy a person's life because you disagree with them, and I think most examples that we see, at least in our view, is against people who are trying to stand for what we agree with, what we believe is right in the Bible. Jesus says, but I say to you who have ears to hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. So Jesus tells us we cannot respond the way the world responds. Those of us who have ears to hear, who have the Spirit, need to hear Jesus' words in the culture in which we are living. Jesus provides next three motivations, because he knows this is going to be hard to do. He provides three motivations for doing this. His first motivation, this is in verse 32 and 34, his first 
motivation is to provide a corporate witness to our culture. He says in verse 32, if you love those who love you, in verse 32 through 34, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. That's the way the world does. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So he's saying that the first motivation for living, loving your enemies, for treating this guy with compassion and grace and praying for him and doing good for him and blessing him is it is in stark contrast to the way the world responds. It provides a corporate witness that there's something a different, there's something different about Jesus' followers. They love their enemies. They treat their enemies with kindness and grace. They raised money for this guy, hypothetically, if we had done that. And what a great witness that is to our culture about the nature and character of God, of, of his nature. And so it provides a corporate witness and a stark contrast to the way the culture responds. Not only do we provide a, not only are we motivated by a corporate witness, but we are also motivated by the reward. Jesus says your reward will be great when you live this way. Verse 35, he says, but love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in turn. Why? And your reward will be great. He wants you to be motivated by a reward, not reciprocal within culture, not, hey, do good for them and they're going to do good for you. Instead, do good for those who will not do anything in return, but do good for them knowing that God will do good to you in return for the reward. And I know right now about half of you're bristling. Oh, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. We shouldn't do it for the reward. We've been taught. Don't do it for the reward. Do it out of duty. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says, do it for God's reward. Now, the caveat is we don't indebt God to us. It's not like God's got some obligation to do for us now that we've done for him. That's not what he's saying. It's not uh, necessarily rewards in this life. It's not a tit for tat. Hey, I gave this guy money. We blessed this guy, Lord. You owe us. That's not the system. That's what makes you go, okay, I don't like the idea of this. Because that's not what we're saying. That's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that your reward eternally, he's saying, it will be worth it, I promise. To do this now will be worth it in the end. The reward will be worth it in the end. Two other places that Luke mentions reward, Luke 12, 33. He says, sell your possessions. These are Jesus's words. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. Talking about eternal blessing. Provide yourselves with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys 
give up the things of this world to bless others in order to enjoy better rewards that last forever. In Luke 14, 13, and 14, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. You hear the motivation? You will be blessed because they can't repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. At the resurrection in the eternal, you will be blessed beyond all measure. The blessing will be well worth any sacrifice that you give now. So let that be your motivation. Don't be, feel guilty about that. When you are tempted and you are struggling, just say to yourself, Lord, you promised it's going to be well worth it in the end. It's going to be well worth it to forgive and to bless and to pray for them and be kind to them and give to them, not demand back. God says, do it now. Trust me. You're going to be glad you did. Let the reward motivate you. There's nothing wrong with that. Finally, our motivation is the character of God, and you will be sons of the Most High. Verse 35, the second part. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. When you are kind to the ungrateful, when you are kind to the evil, you are revealing that you are the Son of God who is kind to the ungrateful and kind to evil. He says, be merciful, verse 36, even as your Father is merciful. So Jesus is saying, when you live this way, when you are kind to the ungrateful, when you are gracious to the evil, when you forgive that person who's not even asking for forgiveness, when you bless them and not curse them, you are revealing that you are the son of God. You are a child of God. You have been transformed. You have the spirit of God in you. You're starting to look like your father when you do that. You know what that's like when your kids look like you. I've got two daughters. Madeline is just like her daddy. Bless her heart. She kind of lives in this cloud. She thinks a lot about things and sometimes to the, to the absence of knowing what day it is. Never will forget time that they were all celebrating that they won the big soccer game. And then about four days later, she goes, oh, we're going to the championship? I'm like, Really? You didn't have any clue. She's just on that game and didn't know what was going on. She's just like her daddy. Her sister's just like her mama. You can just look at her. You can just talk to her. She, she's, you can set your watch by what she's doing that day. It's the same every day. It's rigid. It's routine. It's organized. And, and everything fits on a spreadsheet. She's just like her mama. When you forgive your enemies... When you give to them and bless them and don't just, your instinct is not just, I'm just going to retaliate and kind to evil. I'm going to give evil to evil. When you instead do the different response of the supernatural grace and mercy of your father, then you're going, you look just like your father, your heavenly father. Because that's what he's done for you. Thank God he did not treat me the way I want to treat my enemies. And so God is calling you to be like him. We say we're disciples. We say we're consumed with being like him. Then we should be like him. And we see how he treated his enemies. In verse 37 and following, he brings it kind of the same points, just said a different way. Judge not. Don't prejudge how you're going to treat them. And you will not be judged. Condemn not. And you will not be condemned. This is verse 37. Forgive 
and you will be forgiven. Give, and it'll be given to you. And then there's this, this language of a merchant being tipping the scales in your favor. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and it will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is what God has done for you. This is what God has done for me. He has not treated me the way I've deserved. The Bible says that as I was sinning against him, he died for me. He didn't wait for me to clean my act up. He didn't wait for me to get my life straight and then say, okay, now I accept you. You can't prejudge the way you're going to treat outsiders. You need to treat them like a merchant who puts their finger on the scale and tips the scales, but tips them in their favor, gives them what they don't deserve, blesses them beyond what's proper. While you were sinning against God, Jesus died for you. When you were God's enemy, God did not condemn you. Jesus did not come into this world to condemn sinners, but he came to forgive sinners. I want to make sure that everyone knows today, especially if you're a guest, this is not a club of elite people who have cleaned themselves up and we're insiders and you're outsiders. That's not how this works at all. Members of this church are people who realize that we are all sinners and our only hope is being saved by the grace of God who has provided Jesus Christ as the price for our sins. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to clean up in order to belong to this club. You're not an outsider. We're all outside of God's grace. We're all outside of his goodness and his perfections, but by his grace, he brings us in when we put faith in Christ. And so if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ, Joining this church and being a part of this people is not about being religious. It's about trusting in Christ to be forgiven, to be treated with grace and forgiveness and mercy by the blood of Jesus Christ. Trust in Christ today. And for all of us in this election season, in this cancel culture, in this culture that says, get even and it's them against us, we have got to be a bright light that shines a different way, a gospel way, a way of grace and a way of mercy and a way of forgiveness, a way that says, this is what God is like. This is how God has treated me. And this is what's enabling me to treat others that way. Yeah, you're trying to cancel me because you don't like what I stand for, but I love you because God loves you. Will you join me in trying to be that kind of people? We're not gonna be perfect, we're not gonna get it right, but would you join me in saying, let's try to be different than the culture because of the difference that Christ has made in us. Father, would you help us to, to love our enemies? Would you make us a people that are known by our love, especially this week, no matter what direction the election goes, we can live with confidence that you have the hearts of the kings in your hand and that you are still on your throne. We can live with a, a grace and a confidence in you and we can treat others the way you've treated us. May we love those who don't love us. 
Lord, we need your spirit to enable us. Help us to know it's worth it. It'll all be worth it in the end. We lift this to your praise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord.